Hey, greetings, everybody. Hey, thanks for joining me again as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. In this episode, we'll be talking about Revelation 10.1 through 11.13. For those keeping score, that's most of chapters 10 and 11. Yeah, there's a small paragraph of chapter 11 that we'll include in the next episode, but we're going to go through most of 10 and 11 here. The first six trumpets have blown. And now, before we hear the seventh trumpet, there is another interlude, just as there was between the sixth and seventh seals. And in this interlude, John describes a vision that can be tricky and that might send a message we really don't want to hear. So let's begin with a look at the key players in this imagery. Um, What I'm really anxious to talk about are the two witnesses in the first 13 verses of chapter 11. But before we get there, we need to take a look at three things in chapter 10. Everybody likes the imagery of those two witnesses, and if you've seen it in the movies, it can be a little scary and maybe even a little cheesy, but there's some things we have to do to set that up first. So in chapter 10, we need to look at the mighty angel, figure out who he is and and what his function is. We need to talk a little bit about the seven thunders, and then we need to think about the little scroll and what it actually is. So let's start with the mighty angel. This interlude in chapter 10 starts without any warning or fanfare. And John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. It's a pretty awesome description. The mighty angel is holding a little scroll in his right hand and the scroll is open. The angel sets one foot on the land and the other on the sea and gives a great shout like a lion. At this point, the seven thunders sound as if in response to the angel's roar. And then in verse five, it says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the prophets. Okay, so the two issues with this mighty angel, right? The first is that most folks feel the obligatory need to specifically identify this angel. And the second is that most folks have trouble actually doing that. So the real problem is that the angel is called another mighty angel, but he's described using language that's normally reserved for God, right? He's wrapped in a cloud. He's crowned with a rainbow. His face is like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire and his voice is like the roar of a lion. Not only that, but he stands with one foot upon the sea and one foot upon the land, displaying his complete authority over the whole earth. Let's face it, if he were not described as an angel, we'd think it was Jesus. But Jesus is not usually called an angel in scripture, so what do we make of this? Who is this mighty angel? Well, I want to give you two answers. First, it doesn't really matter. Now, I don't say that flippantly or casually. I say it because I believe it's true. Regardless of what point of view you take, random angel, specific angel, or Jesus somehow, the meaning and interpretation of this section remain the same. I think that's a crucial point. There are many places in this book where our understanding of a specific image or symbol has a great impact on how we interpret the passage. Now, this is one of the places where it doesn't. John has given a prophetic message, and the only essential character trait for this angel is divine authority. Angels are messengers sent by God and on God's authority. We need to know that the angel is sent by God and on his authority so that we know that the message is God's and he carries the authority of God in that message. Other than that, the identification doesn't really matter, right? So that's my first answer. And my second answer is this. I'm going to go with angel of the Lord in quotes. I mean, all through the Old Testament, we see God's most sacred messenger, his angelos, 
sent to his people. And we, we understand their identification of this messenger with God himself, bringing a message from God, right? That identification is so close that many Messianic Hebrew scholars see the pre-incarnate Christ functioning in that role, right? God himself, who is recognizable to his people. Now, that's a debate for another time, but that close connection makes it very easy for me to simply understand why an angel delivering this kind of language would be described with this kind of intensity, right? We need to understand his authority in what he says. Make sense? Now, what really matters about the angel is what he does. The angel actually performs two functions. First, he makes a vow and announces to all creation that the time has come. There will be no more delay. This is significant, right? We've seen God, I don't know if this is the right word, but stalling by doing the plagues to torment unbelievers, right? We understand that this is God's plan to display his power and hopefully win over those who have rejected him. He's willing that none will perish, right? So we understand that this isn't a waste of time, but now the angel declares that there will be no more delay. From this point on, it gets real, right? We are on like Donkey Kong. The second function is the prophetic Old Testament act of delivering a message from God intended for God's people to the person who's designed to deliver that message, the prophet, right? So we see the angel delivering the message to John, who will act as prophet in this case, right? So we'll look at that a little bit in a few minutes. Now, the second key players are those thunders. When the mighty angel roars, the seven thunders speak. But just as John is about to write down what they say, a voice from heaven orders him not to reveal what they have said. Now, some scholars believe that there are originally four sets of seven judgments on the world, right? The seals, the trumpets, the thunders, and the bowls. And that God cancels the thunders since people are not turning from their evil ways. Well, all right, that's a bit of a stretch and there's really not a lot of textual evidence for it, right? And it's also unnecessary. You see, all revelation of God is self-revelation, right? We don't plumb God's depths of our own will or strength against his We know what he reveals about himself. The fact is, we don't know everything, won't know everything, and probably can't comprehend very much, right? The ongoing mystery of God exists because he is so far beyond our understanding that his foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.25. John may be forbidden to reveal what the seven thunders say just because it's none of our business, right? It could be that simple. So I don't think we need to make a lot out of that. And finally, we come to the little scroll itself. What is it? Is it the same scroll we saw in chapter 5? Well, I don't think so. Remember, it isn't a scroll. It's a scrollet, right? In Greek, the word's diminutive, which is why your Bibles call it a little scroll. And in Greek, the definite article is missing. So it isn't the scroll. It's a scroll. Perhaps related to the scroll of destiny in some way, but I don't believe it's the same scroll. But the scrollet is too interesting for us to ignore, right? We're told that John takes it and eats it, and while it tastes sweet in his mouth, it soon sours in his stomach. Well, this is important for two reasons. First, it calls to mind Ezekiel 3, where the prophet Ezekiel is given a scroll and told to eat it, and it tastes sweet in his mouth, right? So what we're seeing is an old and established prophetic image. The seers commissioned to prophesy about many peoples and nations, etc., So this is a specific prophetic moment where the seer is given a specific message delivered to the people, and it's it's got some roots in the Old Testament. We should also note that John eats a meal of, well, can we call it this? Sweet and sour scroll, right? Something about this vision is both pleasing and disturbing. It contains elements of both. It's like God saying to John, look, John, I have good news and I have bad news. So 
what does the scroll contain? What's the prophetic message, right? Well, formal prophecy in the Bible is not simply predicting the future. It's a message from God to God's people. Now, that message does sometimes contain information about future events, but the real heart of prophecy is God speaking to his people through this designated individual, the prophet, right? So if we pulled chapter 10 out of Revelation and stuck it in the Old Testament, everybody would expect the prophetic message to come next. That's how prophecy works, right? Wouldn't it be silly if John disobeyed the mighty angel? Wouldn't it be surprising if he did not disclose the prophetic message as instructed? Actually, it's unimaginable. So we must expect that the prophetic message from the scroll should come next. And I believe that's what chapter 11 contains, right? Now, some scholars believe that the message actually runs from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16. I disagree with that for one important reason, and that's the seventh trumpet. In 11.14, the sixth trumpet is closed with the formulaic passage we've been expecting, right? The second woe is past, the third woe is coming very soon. This is the same phrase used to end the fifth trumpet in 9.12. So the end of trumpet six and the beginning of trumpet seven provide, you know, sort of punctuation they give us a boundary to the message, right? So John gives us these literary cues to help us understand that the prophetic message comes next, and it's probably what we see in chapter 11. All right, so then what's the message? What is this good news, bad news message John is instructed to deliver to the church? Well, that message is delivered in prophetic imagery, which includes the measuring of the temple courts and the life, death, and resurrection of the two witnesses. So, Let's talk about this measuring of the temple thing. This is another recognizable Old Testament image. The prophet is told to measure the temple. Now, we can see from Ezekiel 40 through 48 how the imagery of measuring the temple plays out in prophecy. You measure something to rebuild, renew, or restore it. Measuring in prophecy is a common image of protection. When something is symbolically measured, it is set apart, usually for redemption and protection, right? So John is told to measure the temple but only the inside of the temple. The outer court is specifically excluded. That, John is told, will be given over to the Gentiles, the people who are not God's people, for a period of 42 months. So here, apparently, is the $64,000 question. Is this the temple in Jerusalem or the temple in heaven? Okay, so my first thought is the same as yours. Who cares? Like the identity of the mighty angel, it might not matter to our interpretation of this passage. But if I had to give you an answer, I'd say that this is neither. It's the symbolic temple, the church. There is protection for the church, but only for the inner temple, not for the outer court. That will be trampled. Hmm. Well, gee, Dave, what are you saying? Well, let's look where this vision goes, right? Remember that John does not see two witnesses. We're in prophecy land, not apocalyptic vision land. He is told that God will grant authority to and the language is important here, his two witnesses to prophesy for a period of 1,260 days. So who are these witnesses? Well, the books and movies tell us that these are two specific human beings, probably the reincarnated Moses and Elijah, who will show up at a future time and literally stand in the temple court and prophesy for three and a half years, untouched by the enemies of God. They cause a three and a half year drought, and when they are provoked, fire literally spews from their mouths to consume their attackers, right? Now, if you've ever seen this in a movie, you realize that it looks a little magoo, right? But that's, that's because this literal interpretation it doesn't really add up to what the 
symbolic imagery is trying to tell us. And that's why it looks funny, right? So chapter 11 tells us that the witnesses are the lampstands and the olive trees, right? Don't we already know what lampstands symbolize, right? Didn't chapters one through three tell us straight out what lampstands are in this text? I mean, it's possible for an image to change its meaning between books of the Bible. It's it's rare, but possible. But within a single book, it's just not likely, right? What lampstands mean in chapter one, lampstand has to mean in chapter 11. And what are lampstands? Churches. Now, before we go any further, we need to remind ourselves about another prophetic message. This one from Zechariah. Let me read from chapter four, verses one to six. The angel who talked with me came again and wakened me as one is wakened from sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it. There are seven lamps on it with seven lips and each of the lamps are on the top of it. And by it, there are two olive trees, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And later in that same chapter, verses 12 through 14, the vision continues and it says, And a second time I said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which pour out the oil through the two golden pipes? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so I believe that the two lampstands are two churches. These are the two faithful witnesses of God who will be protected for a time to give testimony to the truth. But lamps need oil, the source of their light, correct? And these lampstands are no exception. The two olive trees represent that source, the Holy Spirit and the olive oil. It's the word of God given to the church by the Spirit. It's not by might and not by power, but by the Spirit of God that the testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ goes out from the churches, right? Now, I hope all that imagery makes sense. I hope you see the connection to Zechariah's vision and understand the imagery of God's two witnesses to the truth. However, there's one last issue to deal with and why two lampstands and olive trees instead of just one. Now, there are several schools of thought on that. Some say the two represent the two churches, right? The Old Testament church and the New Testament church, Jews and Christians, right? Dealt with separately by the Lord. I strongly disagree with that. There's just too much evidence in scripture that the middle wall of separation was broken down by Jesus Messiah. Right? The two are now made one. There's no longer Jew and Greek. The wild olive branch has been grafted onto the tree in place of those that were torn off. We know all of this, right? So I don't like that interpretation. Others say there are two lampstands to represent the people of God through both covenants. God established the covenant with Abraham and his descendants, but Jesus created a new covenant in his blood. I don't have a real problem with this view. I mean, we've seen the two covenant imagery used before, and it's not something that raises my hackles, but it might just be not necessary. Another interpretation plays on the imagery of law and prophets, which was so central to Jewish thought in the first century. To Hebrew people, Moses represented the law and Elijah the prophets. Moses turned water to blood and Elijah shut the sky so it did not rain, right? So we see the two witnesses carry out the powers of Moses and Elijah. And it works well for those who see the two covenant church represented. The churches of both covenants are supported by the law and the prophets representing scripture, all of scripture. Now, I believe the imagery in this passage brings Moses and Elijah into view intentionally, not because they were reincarnated, right? 
but because the law and the prophets as images matter for understanding the full picture of scripture. However, I think we can take a simpler approach to the passage. Remember that these two are said to be witnesses, martus, literally testifiers. The language is legal in nature, and in both the Roman and Jewish legal circles, two witnesses were required to make something true. So the presence of two witnesses could be simply the twofold witness of God, his church. And since there are two lampstands, there are two olive trees dripping oil into them. It, it could just be that simple, right? So the two witnesses of God are protected for a time in order to complete their witness, and no one can come against them. But when that time ends, when, when their witness is complete, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will overcome them and kill them. Their corpses will lie in the street, which is an obvious and definite insult in the ancient Near Eastern world. And people will revel in their deaths. But after three and a half days, they will be raised and they will ascend to heaven. And then a great earthquake ensues. Right? All right. So we've talked about the images. And now it's time to put it all together. Remember, God comes to John and says, I have some good news and bad news. He's commanded to deliver the good news and bad news message. And so he does. So what do you want first? The good news or the bad news? All right. It's a good choice. You always start with the bad news because then the good news cheers you up after, right? Okay. The bad news. The church will suffer persecution. Duh. We have been put here to testify to the truth. That is our job. And we have been and will be protected until the time of our witness is complete. Now, anyone who understands the position of the church globally understands that protected until the time our witness is complete does not mean we won't suffer. The church is suffering all over the world, right? There are places where Christians are killed for being Christians. Okay? But there is still protection in that the church, big C, has not been completely overcome. However, there will be a time right, when the church has completed its witness. And when that day comes, the beast will appear to overcome the church, enough so that our testimony will be silenced. Right? And this is no surprise. The enemies of God will only be able to tolerate our witness for so long. I mean, even now, look around. People hate the church saying this is right and that's wrong. People hate the church calling stuff sin, don't they? They're already frustrated with the church trying to say God doesn't like stuff. So it's no surprise, right? And they're only going to tolerate this for so long before their consciences just won't take it anymore. And they will rise up against the church and silence it. And that will appear to be that. And they will gloat and insult us and laugh over our destruction and party on our grace. Okay, now who wants the good news? So stay with me because there's a lot of good news here. First, there will be no more delay. In this point in the story, the angel makes a declaration. The time is going to come when God will enact his plan and set in motion the things he has kept in waiting for that day. And when that angel makes that vow in the story, we have reached that time. Second, the inner part of the temple has been measured. That means our protection. So while we may face outer persecution, while it may appear that we have been silenced forever, that's just how it looks on the outside. Our eternal lives have been forever preserved by the one who made eternal life possible. Three, the time of our apparent destruction is limited. Those who hate God will laugh and gloat and celebrate thinking that the church has been overcome. But after a time, the church will be raised and will ascend to heaven. Okay? And four, oh, by the way, the church will be raised and ascend into heaven, which is pretty good news. So I think it's important for us to strip away the lie that as the church, everything needs to go our way. And there are a lot of people out there who preach what we might call the prosperity gospel that say, if you live right and pray right and do all the right stuff, 
you know, everything is going to go your way. And that is just not a scriptural truth. Persecution by this world and suffering in the church is, is part of the deal until the end. So that's a fact, okay? But that's not a problem for us. The path to redemption has always gone through suffering, right? It might not be pleasant, but it's important. Christ himself invited us to take up our cross and deny ourselves, right? Think about the first five verses of Romans 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, ready for it? But we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. See, we believe in a living hope in the resurrected Christ, according to 1 Peter. Yet Paul tells us that the path to that hope often comes through suffering, the suffering of that very Jesus who gives us life. That's the suffering we participate in. And while we participate in his suffering, we also participate in his resurrection. Can I get an amen? We have been promised that the world will hate us. We have been promised that we will face persecution. So nothing we've said today should should be a surprise, right? You better believe the first church to hear this message knew exactly what John was talking about. They were well acquainted with suffering. They were experiencing persecution as they were reading this. So this should be a warning and a wake-up call to us. How much more important is it that we cling to the truth, that we cling to our faith, that we testify to the truth whenever we have a chance. It may be our job to suffer for it, but it is also our destiny to be raised to life, right? That is a truth that is very worth testifying to. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray for you right now, and here's my repeated reminder Right? If you're doing something that requires your attention, don't close your eyes. Keep your eyes on what you're doing and just let your heart pray with me right now. Father, we thank you for this amazing uh, passage. It's difficult and it's hard and the imagery sometimes overwhelms us and sometimes it takes us down rabbit holes trying to understand things that might not be there, Lord. But you have given us a message of hope, even hope in suffering, that when the end comes, that when things get so chaotic, that they explode, that you have assured us of our redemption, of our eternal life. And we praise you for that. Lord, help us to be your witness in a real way, not to be those people who stubbornly stand on a street corner and bother people as much as they can, but people who speak the truth when it's needed, when we have an opportunity, when you show us a place to do it, that we would speak your truth for you and not for ourselves. Lord, this is a crazy world, and this is a crazy time, and sometimes craziness helps us to gain a little bit of perspective on on things. And we just ask, Lord, that you would protect us through the craziness, give us healing, give us comfort, give us guidance, and be our God. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, all. Thanks for joining me again. I'll see you in the next episode. Peace.